You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santis Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Ben King, and I'm the Director of Digital Health and Innovation here at Santis Health. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jaron Chong to discuss the implementation of artificial intelligence in the practice of radiology. We'll explore how the discussions around AI have changed since Dr. Chong began practicing and how the effects of AI technologies will impact the sector. Before we get started, I want to introduce our guest. Dr. Jaron Chong is an assistant professor at the Department of Medical Imaging at Western University and serves as the chair of the Canadian Association of Radiologists Artificial Intelligence Standing Committee. In his role at the Canadian Association of Radiologists, Jaron provides strategic insight and leadership to further the organization's understanding and implementation of artificial intelligence. Jaron's expertise is rooted in clinical interests that include cross-sectional abdominal imaging, imaging in MRI and CT modalities, and research interests in the appropriate utilization of medical imaging and AI-assisted augmented radiology. Jaron, thank you for joining us today. Right, thanks for having me. So maybe to, to start this conversation, you know, you told me a little bit about your sort of history and your career path, um, but I think listeners would really benefit from getting that context as well. So can you just tell us a little bit about your story uh, and how you got to where you are, and in particular, sort of where that story interacted or intersected uh, with AI in the field? So I think uh, I've had a long like term history in terms of being interested in computer science and and programming. So I think even from like if you go back to when I was a little kid programming QBasic on a three eighty six computer. So that's been a part of me for quite some time. And uh, all throughout, I would say you know my undergraduate, my medical school. So this was at Western for two thousand and ten. My McGill residency in two thousand fifteen. Uh, there were a lot of actually computer science projects that I was involved in uh, that was involved within my radiology department. And so where this all kind of came to a head was that uh, the peak AI attention, peak AI hype that happened between 2015 to 2016 uh, was actually uh, coincidentally at the same time that I was actually beginning my uh, abdominal and body fellowship uh, and also as well just beginning my first year coming returning back as faculty and staff. And I think that really mirrors a lot of other radiologists experiences around that time as well. And that was around the year where you were hearing quotations in media and, and you know newspaper headlines saying stop training radiologists in five years we have more than enough and so forth so uh, that moment came for me at the same time that I was actually beginning uh, or I would say ending a 10-year or decade-long period of training and just beginning uh, my staff life and so uh, combining my previous interests long-standing interest in computer science and sort of sort of the existential crisis that happened around that time I think that's where I really got my initial interest into how AI would actually interact uh, with radiology. And just, you know, it'd be really interesting if you could tell us a bit about like your actual subjective experience of that. Like, what was it like to be a radiologist who's gone through a decade of training and then see like a Time Magazine article talking about how radiologists are going to be, you know, made irrelevant by, by AI imminently? Like, how did, how did that feel to you? Obviously, I think the same way a lot of us reacted, right? Uh, we were actually, well, uh, some of us were confused, some of us were shocked, some of us were skeptical, some of us were scared. I think there's a lot of emotions that are going through people's minds during that time. And so since 2016, and sort of the evolution out of that period, we've actually had to go through a variety of lessons learned. Um, and I think the main thing that I think that kind of came out of that period is that uh, if I try to reconcile that, that computer science half and that programming half with that clinical half, uh, is that there was a lot of misunderstanding regarding the roles and the capabilities on either side, right? So I think from the clinical side, what I felt uh, was that, you know, we really have to get out of the question of what is a radiologist? And I think that if you narrowly define a radiologist as this is an individual that looks at an image, 
draws a little red box on, makes a diagnosis, puts out a one word positive negative report. If that's all that we were, then there is some overlap with that functionality. But I think that if you look deeper into what a radiologist does, it could be anywhere from interpreting medical images, integrating observations with clinical context, uh, having a you know communication with another physician or consultation with another physician as well. Uh, procedures, obviously, I just came off of procedures just today, right? Um, there's a lot more that ends up happening on the clinical side that isn't really addressed by one convolutional neural network or by one model. And then similarly, on the opposite side, there's been this accommodation period where as clinical radiologists have been learning what software is capable of, like what it's good at, what it's uh, not so good at as well, uh, there's been this interaction towards this idea of having um, uh, an assistive model, right? So basically, uh, there's one really famous quotation that goes out that says something along the lines of, right, uh, it's not so much that AI replaced radiologists, but it's radiologists that use AI in an effective and an efficient manner that will end up basically replacing radiologists that don't. And there's lots of historical metaphors for that as well. We've gone through so many technological revolutions within just the field of radiology that I think this is really going to play out uh, along those same lines. And I'm curious, based on all that, when people were sort of imagining 2023, um, you know, seven years ago when you were sort of encountering AI in, in this way, um, what did people think 2023 was going to look like? What did you think 2023 was going to look like? Uh, and what's the reality then? I think very early on in that discussion, there was oftentimes, uh, you know, there was the, the, the refrain that was most commonly repeated back in 2016 and 17 were the terms of, you know, you need GPU compute, you need uh, better algorithms, you need more data. Like that was the the holy trinity that was required to be able to unlock all of this performance, all of this magic as well. Um, and I think that you have, a, and, and to a large extent, actually, a lot of the innovations that have occurred regarding AI and also biomedical applications have really played off of that. And some of the most recent efforts of generative AI have also played off of that as well. Um, but I think something that we actually quite, uh, you know, misunderstood in the early days, right, was actually the amount of effort required to be able to create high quality data sets labeled annotations that have been validated and verified. I think uh, trying to understand as well too the um, the gold standards that are required to make a good network and to scale it out. So to how do you take a biomedical list of patients, maybe 200, 500 patients, and get the same amount of performance out of that as you would out of a million images or a full image net or internet scale data. And so that's been a little bit of a, a push and pull. Uh, there's certainly a lot of multi-center efforts and collaborative efforts that have been created on there, right? Um, but some of that labeling and the amount of manual work, I think we were more promised in automation of just the entire workflow, but people have invested almost like, you know, like lots of uh, time, resources, man hours, uh, you know, we're talking about like, you know, like thousands of hours across multiple like hospital groups and research groups, right, in order to be able to get some of these, uh, you know, uh, equivalent performance there. So, and then even after those models have been created, I think the thing that we misunderstood and and and, uh, and, and didn't quite anticipate, right, is, but, but in retrospect, if you go back to the historical examples of technology and medicine, is really how difficult change and, and managing that change process is. So once you have a working model, right, but making a good use case for it, uh, making a good business model around it, how do you supply, how do you fund it as well, and how do you deploy it into the healthcare system, I think those challenges were underestimated. And so at the end of six, seven years, we're just beginning to grapple with how do we get the right platform things in place? In terms of those challenges, um, to what extent is that a challenge of the technology just kind of not fitting naturally into what providers and patients actually need? And to what extent is that, you know, a sort of hesitation by the system to embrace change? Like, like how do you see those two factors as interacting um, and, and 
sort of explaining the the slowness of AI to actually change day to day practice. Yeah, I think that that's that's an interesting question. There's the um, uh, I think that the quote or the term that often comes up is this idea of a reluctance to change. Right? How set in your ways are you? as an end user, as a clinician, versus like how likely are you to adopt a, you know, a technology and change? Um, I think that part of the, the, the answer to that, you know, it, it's always a combination of a few things. It's a combination of the performance and the guarantees. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, the local culture of your organization as well, right? So some, some institutions are a little bit more amenable to change. They have uh, a general culture of embracing new and cutting edge technology versus some are late adopters. And so you're going to have that spectrum in there. Um, I think that if the performance were near perfect, you would have actually much faster adoption. But this question kind of comes to sort of an uncanny value of, of uh, performance, where if you have something that's a model, you know, it does a, a decent job, 80, 85% of that time, that 15% gap uh, can sometimes be the difference between something that is actually slowing you down in your workflow versus something that is actually going to automate and actually and speed things up. And, and I think that's that's sort of that major leap that's uh, been hard to navigate. So I'm, I'm curious about, um, you know, for those, let's say, early adopters, how practice has like, actually changed. Um, so, you know, based on your description, you're someone who, like me, likes to sort of play around with tech when you were a kid and all that sort of stuff. And you seem like the kind of person who would be also right now engaged in, you know, playing around with like the cutting edge stuff. How different does your practice look today than it would have looked, say, if you were, you know, 20, if it was 20 years ago and you were starting, if you were at this point in your career in 2003? I think that from a personal perspective, I think that a lot of our clinical practices, and this is what I've been a little bit startled by, right, are very much the same of how we practiced at the very beginning in 2016, right? So, you know, most of the work is still done on a manual basis. Most findings and observations are made manually as well. There are a few niche pockets I would say of Canadian radiologists where, for example, in a lot of screening uh, applications, for example, lung screening, uh, breast cancer screening as well too, where there's a computer assistive device that's implemented in. But a lot of the bulk work is actually still performed quite manually. Um, and I think there are a few factors that add up into that. Uh, some of it is sort of a, an equipment and a kind of lack of standardization and trying to get some standards on there. Some of it is also due to that kind of like what I call a narrow edge case where you can't create a use case model and a funding model around something that has a very narrow application when you have the rest of the job to be able to do as well. But so I think if you spoke to like nine out of 10 radiologists, like uh, the work they're doing now on a day-to-day basis is very similar to what they were doing in 2016. I am not aware of any radiologists that have had their jobs replaced. That's one thing I've obviously been tracking over the last six years or so. Um, and uh, and I, there's probably a lot of appetite for more of these applications. Like the one major difference between 16 and now, right? Most of our volumes have actually gone up by the order of about 10, 25%. So there's actually more clinical work and those tools promise like we really are in desperate need of them to actually help accelerate our workflow. So I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, as a, I was a patient and I was getting some kind of radiological scan. What are the odds that like there'd be any AI in that process in terms of, you know, the, the, this, the technology automatically doing it or the physician using it in an assistive way. If I'm an Ontarian today, which I am an Ontarian today, um, are the odds of AI being involved in the process? 1%, 20%. Do you have any like rough estimate of that sort of thing? I think between those two numbers, I'm going to err more in that kind of one to 5% range. So that's just my first kind of a gut intuition on that. That is going to vary based upon 
you know, which center in hospital are you in a university center versus you're in like a community center as well or a clinic. Uh, but I think it's a more more on the low end of that spectrum. Um, and the uh, the other point that you were making about, you know, uh, now there are different forms of AI. I think like every, all of us, so the vast majority, for example, use voice recognition to create reports. There are more elemental points where AI is, is, is in use for sure. Uh, but with respect to the actual usage of AI software for both diagnostic detection certainly writing a report or interpretation, I think those are in the single digits. And for things like the more processy, like voice recognition and just making your life a little bit easier, do you find those are having an impact or is it really at the point, like it's a nice tool, but it's really on the margins, even for the basic stuff still? So voice recognition, I think, you know, we talked earlier about radiology having many technological changes over the decades. I think voice recognition probably for many of us is the most recent one. Um, the vast majority of practices now are in voice rec. Uh, they, you will not find, and that transition likely occurred, I would say, over the last about 10 to 15 years, uh, where the voice recognition accuracy became high enough uh, that it was actually accurate enough for day-to-day -day workflow. Right. So even that, a very simple task of, you know, you speak into a microphone, you create a report, which seems like a very, you know, you replace one thing with another thing very directly, mm -hmm. an audio transcription with a voice rec. It happened at different times at different places, depending upon funding models, depending upon local technology, early adopters versus late adopters and so forth. Um, so uh, I think that if you take that as a model, or as a metaphor for just one piece, one item, you're going to have to play out that adoption curve for any other kind of AI piece of software, anything in a diagnostic workflow interpretation. And so that kind of adds to why is it that the market penetration is as low as it is? You just need to basically prove the worth and value. So I'm, I'm, you mentioned funding models, and I'm, I think it would be really good to sort of pivot to the policy side of things, because, you know, our Santa Sal is a firm is like we have a big interest in this space. And a lot of our listeners, that's where they live and breathe. Um, and I think if you were to sort of imagine the 2016 kind of cast yourself back 2016 i feel like a lot of the the dialogue back then was this sort of utopian like wow in the next seven years we will have like infinity radiologists because of um these technologies and, and if you're a radiologist that might not be utopian but for like anyone trying to get a scan or whatever that it, it might have felt like oh wow this is gonna reduce the cost to pennies per whatever um Today, I feel like the dialogue is the inverse. The dialogue is um, AI is going to, uh, you know, take over. Uh, it is going to betray us in some way. Um, it is going to lead to like a mass disinformation, etc. Um, and sort of the the government sort of tenor or or attitude towards that. I feel seven years ago was like, wow, what a potential. And today. When I look at like the EU and the US and sort of the policy space, there's this real sort of fear and how do we sort of put a put a put a lid on this? I'm curious for for your thoughts about, you know, if you were to talk to the, the deputy minister of health today or, or become become the new minister, um, how would you approach the policy questions in, in this space? And I think your observation there actually is um, you know, quite quite accurate, quite astute. Um, there is something that is different about the emotional mood and temperament. Now, as a composed, uh, you know, in comparison to the uh, the previous cycle, right? Uh, so I do remember that utopian optimism in 2016, and actually, if you look at the current cycle now regarding generative AI, uh, we've almost hit that peak. Um, the, what is the positive and the optimism? But there's also sort of that concern, the pessimism, and uh, and and that fear there, right? That that curve was navigated much faster 
right? You actually had criticisms in popular media uh, come out very quickly in the matter of order of months, especially with regards to disinformation. Um, so, you know, my own position on that, you know, I think it's an extreme position to say ban all AI. It's an extreme position to say, you know, replace X, Y jobs and so forth. Uh, the reality of the most of the actual clinical applications is that they're going to be a little bit more nuanced, right? And it's going to actually vary based upon a case-by-case uh, situation. Now, I think that coming at it from a clinical perspective, as any kind of a clinical professional as well too, um, it is fundamentally our you know, continuous responsibility that we are constantly trying to navigate between benefits and harms in a societally responsible manner, in a responsible manner for an individual patient as well, public, you know, protecting your individual patient, protecting your public, protecting your community that you serve. Um, and I think that uh, responsibility and that metaphor, it applies without the AI, it applies with the AI. It's a constant that is just the most important thing. Now, addressing your your question there regarding, you know, your your your, your uh, idea of a minister of health, like what would you, from a governmental perspective regarding radiology, I think is a, the most important concept, right? I think one major lesson that we've taken from the last you know, five, six years is that uh, there is a extreme difficulty with respect to validation of software performance, right? Um, in the AI circles, that's commonly termed as a failure to generalize, where you have a model that works quite well in a theoretical sense or in an experimental and research sense, but then you have a real world application of it and it ends up not performing to the same standards as it is, right? Or causing some sort of an unusual complication. I think that we've had a certain play out obviously for, um, you know, as the COVID vaccines kind of rolled out as well too, right? We've had some questions and concerns about that. The engineering takes 48 hours, but the validation takes several months, right? I think we've seen that metaphor play out within radiology AI circles as well. And obviously there's many, many questions and concerns regarding biases and representation. I think one unique thing to acknowledge is that from a Canadian developer perspective, the vast majority of the AI we will probably end up using will not be of and developed from Canada, it will be external. And so in light of that, I think that supporting both high uh, device standards, high software standards and good practice, as well as actually trying to encourage a national or a local validation, I think is going to be very important. And the CRR has uh, several efforts to be able to try to support that. And I, I wonder, so you, you alluded a little bit to um, the idea of biases um, and I, I, maybe it would be good to just spend another minute or two unpacking like how you think this could affect the sort of the patient experience um, and how patients would experience care differently with AI and, and what government should do with that. Because I, I think for, on some level, you know, there's this potential for machines to be able to augment or replace people. But on the other hand, there's just, if I was a patient, and I asked for a diagnosis and a computer did it, it just feels like a little bit weird and creepy. <laughs> um, and, and I wonder, you know, as, as an individual, you know, if I'm told, you know, AI works 1% better than than an actual human radiologist. So get over the creepiness because it's a little better. I, I wonder how we as a society would want to navigate that trade-off and when we would sort of choose to automate things or allow decisions to be done sort of in a non-human way. Um, how would you sort of view that challenge and the sort of question of when and if you ever sort of hand over control to, to the machines? So obviously a very complex question, right? Because uh, we're going to be coming at it from a various perspective. Obviously, as a clinician, I have my own personal natural biases as well in that as well. Um, but I think the general thesis that uh, I prefer from a philosophical perspective, right, is um, there are certain tasks that are idealized for machines 
there are certain tasks that are idealized for a clinical expert or for a human expert as well. So the term goes, you know, let machines be machines, let humans be humans. And we actually have individually different strengths, right? Um, so for example, as a human expert, you know, you're able to synthesize, you know, unusual circumstances, unexpected training samples, diseases and conditions where they're just not going to be represented in the training data that's out there. Um, you're going to be able to contextualize how a fellow physician, how a fellow surgeon thinks, like what do they think is important versus not, that's going to be very difficult to incorporate into a training model. And also that communication element as well too. There are radiologists that are communicating diagnoses. I, I think it would be a little bit uh, unnerving, as you kind of said, right, where you had a new you know, diagnosis of a cancer and you're being told that over an SMS message or a text or in an impersonal manner. There's certain things that just as from a physician, from a medical perspective, we are just better able to, uh, you know, and, and equipped to be able to accommodate, right? Now, concerning the the automation and the evidence thing, I think in general, if you look at the combination of potential harms and the risks and benefits of these applications, you will generally get that you will maintain the existing medical standard of care if you involve a human expert of some kind. And if the uh, artificial intelligence system is assistive or consultive or suggestive of some kind, you will have an equivalent performance or perhaps something a little bit higher. Right. Whereas you have this kind of like risk and trade off benefit where if you run towards a full automation, right, that ideally would be backed by an extensive amount of, uh, of evidence base, real world validation and things that actually will take, I would think, actually, a lot of real world use by physicians, by surgeons, by radiologists, by everyone else. Right. In order to come to terms with that validation. Right. So there's almost like a stepways progress in some manner. Right. But I think that flipping a switch and expecting it to happen immediately and over one night is, is not realistic. It's not reflective of what we've seen in our experiences in the last six years. And, and on that point about validation, um, can you maybe speak a little bit about the, the Raven program and, and whatever can be, be shared about how that's developing? So uh, Raven is a little bit of an abbreviation there, R-A-I-V-N, Radiology AI Validation Network, um, is a concept that we've put forward within the CAR uh, which is essentially uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to engage simultaneously uh, the regulators within the Canadian national space, as well as individual AI solution providers and vendors, and then also the clinical radiologists and the experts. So sort of that little, like a little triforce of the three, so, uh, three sections that are involved there in order to work together on basically building the appropriate workflow for validation to prove to everyone, prove to regulators, prove to patients, prove to the radiologists as well at the same time, uh, that there is uh, a, a good real-world execution of those AI solutions and actually which ones effectively are the most effective and going to be the most beneficial for patients. Now, what form and shape that takes on is a few models that are being explored right now, ones that are more regulator-facing, ones that are more vendor-facing as well. But I think that if you come in contact with us on CAR, uh, get in touch with either the main website and also the information as well too. Uh, if you are a vendor, if you are a regulator space as well, we have a lot of interesting thoughts to be able to share. Um, and I think that the, the overall framework, which is our proposed framework, which is a combination of both subjective as well as objective evaluation, subjective, very akin to that of a focus group where you get radiologists clini you know, uh, clinically commenting on the workflow and how your AI solution works. And also the objective evaluation, which is where you try to look for those edge cases, the ones that we know that may be issues as well, and see how uh, well or poorly does a solution work in those situations. Uh, it's a mixture of those two ideas that will, will we think, form the, the appropriate validation basis for these solutions. I, I was really hoping that at some point in a Santa's podcast, someone would reference Triforce. And so yeah. I'm very glad you got there. You, you won me over. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's a nice symbol as well, too. I was so if we put that keyword into the script, that would be awesome. Exactly. That, that really uh, 
regardless of the specifics, I'm already won over just by virtue of the, the reference. Um, so maybe just, we've got a, a few minutes left just to, to pivot a little bit. We've talked a lot about um, sort of your history and experiences and the current state and how government should be thinking about things. Um, obviously predictions, especially in like the AI world are a bit of a fool's errand, uh, but let's put that aside and make some bold predictions. Uh, what do you see as sort of the, the pathway forward? What's what might happen? What's like the really good scenario where AI does amazing things? And what's the really bad scenario where there's a lot of issues? Okay, that, that's that's a complicated question, right? So like uh, several of us have been burnt making very strong predictions. Uh, it's a dangerous business to kind of be, uh, be involved in as well too. So, you know, there's a few principles I kind of, uh, you know, back myself off into, right? Uh, you know, we tend to overestimate in the short term. We tend to underestimate in the long term. I think that's one very good principle that we've seen historically. Uh, we have a poor intuitive grasp of exponential changes, right? So things that are linear versus exponential, it's very hard to understand how things can rapidly change. And then when you're faced with this sort of an unknown or rapidly changing scenario, um, the most useful thing is to kind of ground yourself and to embrace what is effectively timeless or permanent. It's almost like it's a values decision. It's a choice that you think will be true now, but will also be true 10 or 20 or 50 years, regardless of what happens in the technological landscape. Uh, so here from a Canadian healthcare perspective, I mean, you know, I like the principles of the Canada Health Act, right? So you have public administration, comprehensiveness, universality, portability, accessibility. My, my feeling is that with or without the technology, um, those individual pillars that because they are a chosen value set for Canadians now, and if we maintain that value set going forward, will be independent of those technological advancements. So if you ask me to kind of model out what's a good scenario, what's kind of a bad scenario. I think that the good scenarios are things that will support those value decisions that we've made now. So things that, for example, we've used AI to generate more treatment options for someone, to create more accurate diagnoses, faster diagnoses, more effective treatments. There will be general consensus that that's a good evolution. Um, if you can have you know more portability in terms of your records and summarization, so you can now access your images or your reports from anywhere the, to the people and your care team that you've authorized, right? That portability is also going to be kind of a good thing. Um, any AI that actually you know enhances and smooths workflow, now, we don't often draw this connection in parallel, but when you smooth workflow, it's not just a nicer day as a radiologist. It's fundamentally, um, it's more care being delivered. It's more images being taken. It's more patients getting a, off that wait list and to the actual resources that they need as well. So workflow is not just an individual worker kind of a thing. It actually affects things very broadly in the entire uh, system and actually improves access to healthcare overall. Now, if you look at the negative scenarios, now these are a little bit you know complex to model, right? But if you start inverting those pillars, if you start having models that are extremely biased by location, population, demographics, age, pre-existing conditions, if you start having automated models that are denying care to individuals without any oversight, without any assistance as well, right? I, I think you're actually going to start you know damaging some of those initial pillars, and you end up with a negative scenario. Right. So it's it's a you know very hard to model up what will necessarily happen. I think the most important lesson that I kind of feel is that given that you cannot predict what happens from a technological perspective, your only dynamic option is to be engaged and to be involved. Right. I think that's actually the most important lesson that we've kind of learned. Uh, it's not to just you know bury your head in the sand and ignore what's actually happening. You as a population, so a population of professionals, a population of regulators, you know, uh, you will be able to see what has happened in the current time being and adapt very quickly to it, so long as you're paying attention and you're engaged. And so that, I think that's the most important lesson that, that uh, I think that we, we we've learned from, and it's certainly been helpful as we've spoken to other specialties as well. 
I think if I could sort of summarize that idea, and I think it's a powerful one, it's the sort of idea that like, there's a good path and a bad path and anything in between. And we have kind of these agreed upon Canadian values around healthcare. And if the, we sort of as a collective community take that values-based model, we can like steer towards the good and away from the bad, uh, which I think is like, I don't know, a, a beautiful lens to look at it. Um, I'm wondering just as, you know, we're, we're kind of coming up to time uh, as concluding remarks, if there's anything you'd want to add about like how to make that sort of values-based approach work in practice? Like who, who do you think needs to act and how would you, how would you sort of, what would you want your call to action to be? Let's say, yeah, uh, kind of coming out of this, uh, this discussion. The way I kind of break it out is sort of like a personas of profiles of people, right? So, you know, if you're a medical professional, whether you're a programmer, you're not a programmer, you're just a regular uh, MD or not, right? Um, you know, I think it's important that you engage with the technology that's being made, being kind of implemented, uh, promote and actually promote and support the technology that you feel is doing the right thing. That's actually helping workflow. That's actually helping patients, right? Um, I think the major risk as a professional is just that you can't passively consume the technology. Um, you end up being sort of this consumer. You have what you have, right? And you can't really, you know, voice too many concerns with it. You can't support the ones that are very, very good as well at the same time. Um, and and if you don't have that engagement, you may end up, you know, having a piece of technology that you may not agree with. You may the values that you support and you espouse from your profession may not be present there, and so you avoid that by maintaining that engagement. Um, I think that uh, if you could speak to developers, vendors, uh, AI solution providers, and so forth, uh, the one major lesson for them is just that there is a great deal of medical expertise that's available out there. And the real risk is developing something, you know, uh, without consultation and kind of independent, right? So if you really want to save your time and energy and resources, there are only so many you know, AI engineers that are in the world as well, too. You want the highest impact results, ones that will go to market, ones that will be effective and will be useful, Right. The best way you get around that is just to basically tap into that medical expertise, either within your organization or, or elsewhere. Uh, and then the final point is just more so like, you know, to that regulator lens, that governmental or healthcare leader lens as well, too. Um, I think that there is an issue regarding uh, the level of investment and resources that we put towards a lot of these initiatives. Um, and over time, I think that if, if you don't have the right level of investment, uh, you're going to have you know, a, a situation of haves and have nots. And that's not just within Canada. I would say Canada versus other nations as well at the same time. And uh, these are you know, investments involving deployment of AI, but also validation um, and uh, the further development, original development as well, too. Uh, what I've found personally, the most difficult part actually is not so much the technology bent, but actually the personnel, a part of that equation, right? So finding the right people to operate with, within your organization or to kind of consult in at the same time. And the effects, unfortunately, they're cumulative. So failure to invest early on actually does result in a greater deficit that you can't quite catch up on later on as well, too. So slow starts, harder to catch up a little bit later. Uh, but I think the interest is there. I think that the uh, the technology and developments, it's captivating everyone uh, you know, across the planet right now, right? And I think that uh, if you put the right you know, people with the correct values in the in the in the correct places, right, you're going to get some positive developments. You're going to capture the benefits uh, and and try to do your best to negate the harms. Well, I'm going to steal a bit of a phrase that, that you said to me earlier in a pre previous discussion that you know technology isn't sitting still, so the the various communities you articulated also can't sit still, which I think is a, a beautiful concept. It's a it's a very uh, long and ambitious sort of call to action, but I think it's the right one because the the sort of the the potential and the risk in front of us is pretty wonderful slash daunting depending on your perspective uh and it's and we've got a lot of work to do 
Um, thank you so much for, for the time. This has been a really interesting discussion. Uh, I think we, we can talk about this, maybe we will again, uh, for, for a very long time because I, I know that you've got a lot to say and I've got a, a lot of interest, but, but I will leave it at that for this one. And, and thank you so much for, for taking the time today. All right, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.